Thank you so much for downloading the very first of our ethical marketing podcasts. This was the first one we recorded and there was a couple of audio issues with the microphone in the first section. So I apologize for that, but I felt it was quite a good conversation and I didn't want to go back and re-record it. I hope it doesn't detract from your enjoyment too much. Thank you very much. Welcome to the very first Ethical Marketing Podcast. My name is Stuart Mitchell and I am the owner and editor for Ethical Marketing News. And my day job is I work for an arts organisation. Hi, I'm Hannah, Hannah Sturdy. I'm a fashion management graduate from last year, currently studying my master's degree in digital marketing. I also work for a property marketing agency here in Edinburgh. So I think, first of all, we're going to chat about some things that have been going on in the news recently um, relating to ethical marketing. There's been some really big news stuff, some of which we cover in the interview we've got today, which is a really good interview with Shan Conway Wood. Um, I hope you'll really enjoy that. One of the things that I found really interesting this month is that AdGreen has announced that it's launching a carbon capture calculator in September. They say that the AdGreen carbon capture calculator will be a valuable tool for organisations aligning with AdNet Zero Initiative. And uh, another interesting story with regards to sustainability and green issues in advertising that came up this month is that Nestle is going to be the first UK advertiser to use recycled paper in its uh, out-of-home advertising. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Nestle, not always the greatest and most ethical company. I don't think anyone is going to say that they are. But it's really interesting that they're the first to do this, just because it amazes me that other companies haven't done it first. So uh, hopefully it'll be something that'll be picked up by a lot of other companies as time goes on. One story that I have found really interesting this week is Channel 4 launching a dedicated pregnancy loss policy, which um, will affect men and women both working for their company which I think is really interesting as this is thought to be the first ever dedicated policy that is for people who have gone through a pregnancy loss and I think it's really important to mention obviously that this is not only a physical trauma but an emotional trauma that people go through and now they're getting the counselling the support that they need and something that is really important is that you know pregnancy loss happens a lot more than people think it does and it affects a lot of people and so I I think that's kind of a really positive thing to come out of the news recently and something that a lot of people should be paying attention to. Yeah, I think Channel 4 are really quite good for things like this. They really do seem to have their head screwed on when it comes to uh, kind of trying to do the right thing. And I think that's really important in any media organisation. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just think it's quite amazing that this is the first example of this that we're seeing, but saying that hopefully it's leading a path soon it'll become a regular thing and be something that's commonplace from these types of com- types of companies in terms of thinking about diversity P&G have paired up with GLAAD the world's largest lesbian gay bisexual transgender and queer media advocacy organization to create the visibility project which is a campaign to sustain the LGBTQ inclusion in marketing yeah, I think this is kind of thing is really important, especially at the moment. We've seen a kind of real attack on certain aspects of the LGBT community, specifically the, the trans community of late. But it, it feels like we need to to be showing a greater representation in everything. And, and a lot of this starts in, in marketing and advertising and things, because that's what people see. It's People need to see things as they are, not how they want them to be. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. And I think that something that's really interesting about this um, particular campaign is you know, there are a lot of advertisers out there. So 61% of advertisers and 28% of marketing agencies agree that they're fearful of public backlash for including the LGBTQ community, um, community in advertising. But then there's also a fear from advertisers and agencies that they're somehow going to be portraying this in an inauthentic way that is going to offend the LGBTQ community. So it seems like a very fine balance to get right. But the fact that this is being noticed and is something that people are actually realizing, I think, is an important step in the right direction. I think it's something that we as kind of marketers though, also need to stop being scared about the backlash because it's life and we need to we need to be portraying life 
I mean, one of the points, I guess, about ethics in marketing is that we try to portray things as they are. We don't try to, to change it too much. And I think that's really important that it, it feels weird that in this day and age that this is still an issue, that people are still upset because Cadbury's cream egg cured two gay men. I mean, why is that an issue in this day and age? I don't understand it. Absolutely not. I think it's, it's something that's so important when it crops up in, whether it's TV advertising or film or any sort of media, that when you are more inclusive and showing any sort of diversity, you know, you're broadening your target audience. You're making your brand seem more appealing to such a broader range of people. And you are making, whether it's young people or even older people who haven't seen themselves represented through media, you're making them, them feel more comfortable with the media that they're seeing because they're seeing themselves reflected in this, which is something that as a straight white person, I feel like I can completely take for granted because I can see myself in every single um, media situation. You know, I'm always there, but for other people, it's not the same. And it's something that needs to change. It just feels strange that we're still listening to the people who are shouting about this. If you are uncomfortable with that, that is your problem. That is not the problem of the people being portrayed. It's really interesting because this has been Pride Month, so there's been a lot of really strong marketing around LGBTQ+, and I think it's really good to see it. And I know that there's a bit of a, we talk about greenwashing a lot on this uh, interview, and I guess I've heard it stated, I think, a rainbow washing of people who are falsely jumping on, on the Pride thing. And I've seen it with companies that have, shall we say, had less than stellar reputations with regard to either representation or attitudes towards LGBTQ+ plus people who are now doing some really, uh, you know, kind of in-your-face marketing on it. And there's definitely an issue there, but kind of a bit like I, I am on greenwashing, I kind of would rather it's out there. I'd rather people see it. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. One other thing that's been really important and really exciting happening is seeing the not-for-profit group, Hey Girls, releasing a film, which is taking into account psychology and science to get you really angry about period poverty happening in the UK. So one in 10 people within Britain are unable to afford having their period, which obviously, as being something which is out with people's control, is just um, a really, really big figure. And what this ad aims to do is actually make people emotional, make you get you feeling angry. Um, and try and just get people feeling as emotional as possible about this to get people to realize how important it is and the actual power that you can have when you get angry about something and try to take some action. I think that this is something that's really important when you think about, again, that statistic. To me, it is imperative that there should be an option that everybody can access and that you shouldn't be having to pay out money for something that you cannot control. So I think especially because of that, you know, this is really important and something that really um, strikes a nerve, really. and it does get me angry when I think about it, and I'm sure it'll be the same with so many other people. It's been really great to see Hey Girls come forward. We covered it when they first came on the scene. It was 2018, and it was just the, the very first time, and it, it was just a very small thing, and they've just done so much. It's incredible the amount they've done, the amount they've changed. So it's really great to see them continuing with some stunning marketing. And... And welcome to the guest for today's podcast, which is Shan Conway-Wood. And Shan is a social entrepreneur, a sustainability expert, best-selling author, speaker, and founder of Ethical Hour. So, hello, Shan. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you've chosen to speak about, first of all? Yeah, so we're going to talk today about greenwashing, which is a topic that I'm very, very passionate about. I'm currently writing a book on the subject, so I've been digging really deep into it. Um, but for those that aren't aware what greenwashing is, it is the practice um, where companies will spend more money on their marketing and PR to look ethical and sustainable than actually in their supply chains, changing their practices and becoming ethical and sustainable. So it, our discussion will probably overlap a bit with purpose washing or what's being termed as woke washing as well, which is more on the ethical side with kind of, um, you know, social causes and purpose and things. But really, this is kind of companies doing unethical marketing to cash in on the goodwill of people wanting to change their shopping habits for the better. Brilliant. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your business? 
Yeah, so I run Ethical Hour, which is a network really for anyone that wants to live and work more ethically and sustainably, but particularly for small business owners. And I always joke that I started my business accidentally, uh, didn't really mean to do it, but here we are. We were just debating um, before we came on air whether it's been five or six years, and I can't quite remember, but five or six years later, here we are. Um, but really, I was working in corporate marketing and decided that I wanted to live more sustainably and make some changes in my life and just didn't know where to go to get that information. Obviously, five or six years ago was pre-Blue Planet 2, pre the big surge in awareness around plastic pollution, even around kind of the climate emergency and things. Obviously, the kind of inner circle of sustainability have been very aware of that for a long time, but it's only in the last few years that it's really gone into mainstream media and discourse. Um, so there was not that much information out there. And I kind of took to social media to start connecting with people and trying to find out what I could do. And I quickly realized two things. One was that there were some really good conversations going on on a one-to-one -one level. So if you would connect with somebody in this space, you would have a really good conversation, learn loads of stuff, but we weren't all talking together. So I wanted to create a space where that could happen. And the second thing that I learned very quickly was that there were some amazing small businesses out there with really, really good stories to tell, really transparent supply chains, very committed to sustainability, but they were really struggling to get that cut through against the big brands with their marketing because they just didn't have the budget to spend on advertising and consultants and all the rest of it. So that's really where Ethical Hour came from. It was bringing my skills in as a marketer. Um, and I had worked with startups previously as well in kind of incubator programs. Um, so bringing in all those skills to help them with that storytelling and also then creating the platform where they could learn from each other, support each other and do that. So today I do work one-to-one -one with brands as a consultant, um, but the real core of our business is our membership community where small business owners get training, connections, support, opportunities. Um, and, you know, this all happens inside our private network, which I'm sure we'll talk about because uh, there's been some changes and obviously you're part of it. So you've seen those changes, um, but all of that happens in this private network. Um, so they really get that support that, that I felt was missing and that they felt was missing. Um, and that's that's what we do that's so exciting thank you yeah it's uh it's grown very quickly so it's it's all organic um I've done a very very tiny amount of paid advertising that's not my specialty at all you know I've kind of just dabbled with it occasionally um but pretty much all organic and we reach something like 61,000 people worldwide now like across our social platforms um, and then obviously a smaller amount inside the network itself where we really kind of hone in on that support and connection there. I was just going to say a bit more of a, a like a personal question I guess um, when you said that you were starting to think about those kind of um, changes that you wanted to make in your own life like where did you start with that when you were thinking about making your life more ethical and making those changes towards being more sustainable yeah good question so for me it really started with fashion I mean at, the, at that time I was like in my mid-20s typical kind of fast fashion consumer you know corporate career so good disposable income and would just go out and buy loads and loads of clothes you know night out on a Friday yep. new outfit <laughs> and lived in a tiny little one-bedroom apartment had no room for all these clothes like my a whole apartment was just covered and always felt like I had nothing to wear really struggled with kind of body confidence and all the rest of it but but never made the connection between what was going on with my mental health and what was happening with my kind of consumer habits and then I went on holiday to Cambodia with my mum. And while we were there, we had this beautiful day. We went out to a place called Silk Island, which is where they make all the silk. And we kind of saw the whole process from start to finish. We met loads of artisans that were doing all this weaving. Um, and, it, you know, we had a go on the looms and it's really, really difficult. Uh, but they make it look so easy. And then they laugh at you when you try and you're absolutely terrible at it. And then so we had this lovely day kind of learning about these handicrafts and things. Then when we got home, well, back to the hotel, um, I realised that the trousers I'd been wearing, which would have been from a fast fashion brand, so it would have cost me sort of 10, 20 pounds. The label in them said made in Cambodia. And I just had this kind of light bulb moment almost of like, oh, my gosh, who has made these? 
And I didn't like this sounds so naive now, but I still think that some consumers think this. Like I didn't realize that cheap clothes weren't being made by robots. Like it was it's still people in a factory making those clothes, mm-hmm. using those skills, um, which was a real kind of horrible light bulb moment for me because obviously then you realize what you've been buying into as a system and what you've been supporting so when I came back that's when I decided like I need to to make changes in my shopping habits so that's what I started with was fashion and just started by doing a month of no new clothes and just wearing what I already had really cleaning out what I had and getting rid of some of the clothes I was just never going to wear work my style and things and kind of starting to find my own style and what I enjoy wearing rather than you know in terms of fabrics and fit and colors and everything rather than just buying what the latest trends were telling me and it was then when I realized that actually slowing down that shopping habit obviously really changed my finances but also changed my mental health in a lot of ways um, and was changing my lifestyle for the better so that's when I was like right what else can I change you know move towards more natural skincare products cruelty free products things like that so I really started with kind of personal care and around the home and it just kind of ballooned from there really as it does once you get once you open up that can of worms. (laughs) I think that is so true for so many consumers I think that is such an important thing I feel like I'm the same I studied fashion at university and we got taught so much about more so greenwashing within the fashion industry but as well how you can make yourself a more sustainable consumer and I think it's just so important now I am was so bad for exactly the same thing you know going out and spending money on these clothes that were so cheap and you just at the time you don't think about it and it does seem so naive but there are so many better options out there so yeah I completely relate to that I think it's very important yeah and just to pick up on what you said about feeling naive and obviously I kind of said that as well in my bit what I've been looking at in my book is a lot of the marketing techniques and the advertising techniques that these brands are using, not just to sell us kind of the latest thing, but actually to keep us over consuming. So it's really, really interesting not to delve too deep into it, but kind of the little nuggets of interesting information that I'm kind of teasing out in the writing that I'm doing. When um, obviously consumption of resources is like a survival instinct for us so we have to consume food we have to consume resources to make shelter and things but because of the way we evolved when we were consuming as if you think back to kind of caveman days we never would have consumed so much that we would run out so we never needed to evolve the ability to stop consuming so we don't have that natural reflex of stopping and actually when our survival instinct kicks in our fight flight or freeze response our go-to reaction is to consume because gathering resources is what would make us safe and secure so advertising if you think about advertising it always plays on some insecurity doesn't it even if it's just showing you like a group of people out having loads of fun in all these beautiful clothes that's playing on your insecurity that you're not part of that group and you're not safe because you're not part of it and it really speaks to like the primitive parts of our brain that then go into like I need to consume to feel safe so then we go and buy something and obviously then they're conveniently there saying you know buy this car or buy this watch or buy this dress or whatever it is and this will make you feel safe it'll make you feel secure it'll make you fit in and when our primitive survival brain kicks in it shuts down the bits of our brain that are responsible for rational thought so we are completely unable to make that rational decision because if you rationally said do you want to buy this dress that's been made by a child in a factory that's been exploited and is really bad for the planet? Or do you want to buy this one that's fair trade and organic and all the rest of it? You would obviously pick the good one. But so why do we still pick the bad one? It's because of that manipulative advertising that is just genuinely messing with our brains. I think that's interesting. I think we all come from a marketing background. It'd be interesting to, to, I guess, to ask when you first became aware of the lack of ethics in marketing, potentially. I mean, obviously, it's something close to our heart, but uh, from a marketing perspective, when you realise that it's not always the most ethical business we're in. Yeah, so I didn't actually study marketing at university or anything. I just kind of fell into it because I was working in accelerators and incubators with startups. And the bit that I loved was how do you get the word out there? How do you tell the story? And I kind of self-taught by listening to loads of podcasts, you know, watching YouTubes in the evenings and things. And 
and just learned by doing. So I guess I never really learned a lot of those kind of manipulative techniques and things. I don't know if they're taught on marketing degrees and things like that, but, but I was never aware of it then. Um, but it was really when I went down that path of addressing my own consumption and then starting to think about, well, why have I been buying all of this stuff? And when I was at university, I was involved in the Say No to Sweatshops campaign. And obviously then that had all gone out the window in my 20s and I was just over-consuming fashion. I was like, how did I go from being a campaigner to this really unsustainable practice? And I started kind of analysing it. And I guess I was working in corporate marketing, but I was working for service-based companies. So again, the whole kind of link with overconsumption hadn't really come up because I was selling you know, financial services and software and things like that. So slightly different. But once I started digging into that question of why am I overconsuming so much? And also, why is it hard to stop? Even though I've you know gone on this journey, had this light bulb moment, really had this soul searching time of I want to change my consumption habits why am I still wanting to go out and buy clothes when I've had a bad day at work or I feel rubbish or I've got an occasion coming up? Why, why do I still feel like I can't wear the same outfit twice? Where's all that coming from? And I think it was because I'd started doing that kind of mental health work on myself and things that I started to notice that. And that's when I made the link of, oh, people like me who are marketers are manipulating people like me who are consumers this is really bad. And that's, I think that's when I really decided that I wanted to work with more product-based businesses because that is kind of counterintuitive because we all need to buy less and we know that's the solution. But for me, I wanted to get the word out there about the ethical alternatives and the good products and also do that in a way that isn't manipulative. So show that you don't have to market in that way. And obviously that's what you guys were all about as well. So that's that's when we connected. I suppose, Hannah, you're the most recent, just about to graduate? Yes, I will graduate in November. So, yeah, just wondering how ethics has featured, if at all, over your career. Well, um, I did have, I was doing my undergraduate, which I graduated from just last year. I think in my third year, I had one module on ethics in business as a whole, where we looked at the consumer behaviour side of things, Um and it was more about that kind of psychology side. But if I'm completely honest from doing um, my undergraduate degree was in fashion management. So the business side of things, um, we were definitely taught. I think we were one of the first courses that were taught about the sustainable alternatives that you can do so there was a few times where we had to look at case studies or we had to think of new campaigns for fashion brands where um we were looking at for example a section of the class got to look at um a green company we were looking at the gray consumer we were looking at all these different sectors and how we can appeal to those people because i think that certainly from the fashion perspective something that is always a little bit daunting and perhaps off-putting to especially younger consumers is that sustainable fashion always appears on the surface more expensive. Um, especially when you look at it from a high street perspective, you've got brands like H&M who have these sustainable lines, but they seem unreachable because compared to the normal clothes that they're producing, they're double the price. And so especially for younger people, students who maybe don't have as much disposable income, it's really off-putting. And I think that that's something that really needs to change because I can say from personal experience when I was doing my undergrad, certainly in the first couple of years, it was something that I was interested in and I really wanted to try and push myself to be more sustainable, but I couldn't find it in myself to say, oh, I would rather spend this amount of money on these really good jeans that are going to last me 10 years or spend this amount of money on a pair that are going to last me five months but they're a quarter of the price and I think that certainly in the fashion industry that is something that is really important and that needs to be that needs to become a change really in getting the message out to people that you don't have to um, <laughs> go out to places like ASOS or Pretty Little Thing, whatever it is, and buy 10 items for £1 when you could buy something that's going to stand the test of time and be more durable and something that's going to stay in fashion longer as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Hannah. And I think that's where we get that attitude behaviour gap of, again, if you ask consumers, they will say, I want sustainable, I want ethically made. But if you look at spending data, mm -hmm. that's not where they're spending their money. 
but also is that trend you know these fast fashion brands and they're not the you know fashion is a really easy industry to pick on because it's so bad but this is going on across the board really but let's go back to fashion for a minute these fast fashion brands are putting out up to 52 collections a year that's one a week like that hundreds of thousands of garments and you know there's so many problems they're burning over stock and all the waste and everything else you know we could do a whole separate mm-hmm. episode on and we might. in the fashion industry and we might do <laughs> but um that overproduction of trends and the messaging that's come with that has made us feel like we need to be mm-hmm. on that hamster wheel and so if you were faced with buying a pair of jeans that you're going to have to pay more for, so that's a pain point that you're going to have mm-hmm. to overcome, but you're not going to want the same pair of jeans for 10 years because you want the latest trend. So it's getting off of that hamster wheel mentally as well and, and escaping that marketing. And I think that's the, and you know, this leads us quite nicely into the greenwashing because they do have these conscious collections. They do have recycling schemes. They do have a lot of things that on the surface look as if they're going in the right direction. But those conscious collections are often sold as loss leaders because although they are more expensive than their other products, they're still too cheap. Um, so there's two things with that. They, they sell them as loss leaders to get you in store to buy more stuff. And with things like their organic cotton ranges which are more expensive but are still not really the true cost because they're made in the same factories there's still kind of uh cost savings if you like another word for exploitation in this case in the supply chain somewhere but they are buying up all the stock of organic cotton because there's only so many certified farms in india there's only so much supply of that organic cotton and they are buying it up and obviously they can command that economy of scale that they can get it at a much cheaper price than a smaller ethical brand could but the small ethical brands are struggling to access the organic cotton because they're just buying it up in bulk making cheap clothes out of it that don't last and then perpetuating this Mm -hmm. waste cycle so there's so so many issues with that and i just think all of these conscious collections and recycling schemes and everything else they are greenwashing until these brands you know that they are progress in the right direction but until these brands are willing to talk about degrowth they are they can't be anything other than greenwashing in my opinion yeah I think I completely agree and when you think about how many independent businesses there are that are making something that's so much of a better quality I think especially speaking from a consumer perspective again you want to support them I would so much rather put my money towards and spend money with an independent local business than with a high street brand who could not really care less about me as a consumer about the planet about the local community about any of these things so yeah I completely agree yeah and the the problem there is that these brands have our brand trust as huge brands with big advertising budgets that can be on the billboards can be on the tv can surround us at all times with all those subconscious messages that we absorb it's something like between 6,000 and 10,000 a day subconscious advertising messages that we absorb. So these big brands are occupying this space with their sustainable collections. And because we trust them, because we assume, oh, they're a big brand, you know, I'm used to them, I see them everywhere, they're trustworthy. They then water down what the general public sees sustainability as because they see it as these conscious collections. I had a discussion with some friends a couple of years ago about where they buy fashion they consider themselves to be conscious consumers and they named one of the big high street brands and say oh I buy their conscious collection I said well what does conscious mean to you and they were like oh I don't actually really know when I think about it I can't really tell you why it's conscious why it's sustainable so I explained to them you know it's because they use a percentage of organic or a percentage of recycled but they're not transparent about what that percentage is most of the time they're still made in the same factories and they're still overproducing. so they are watering down the understanding of what sustainability is. And I think, and again, that is, we're picking on fashion again, but that's happening in so many industries. Um, And, you know, the the big oil companies are the worst for that. Uh, And I think this is where greenwashing is becoming so toxic because it's, it's no longer just those seven sins of kind of, you know, vagueness and, and no proof for these claims, but it's actually how it's getting into our psychology and affecting our understanding of what sustainability is. Before uh, we started this recording, one of the things we discussed and I was saying that uh, ethical marketing news as kind of policy has been that we will cover press releases by anyone, even though we occasionally are very well aware that, that, that this is greenwashing. However, our stance is kind of 
if we don't publicize it they're just not going to bother doing it at all they're doing it yeah. and if they don't get that there's no reason for them to even do the small amount they're doing it's a real dilemma though um and it is difficult and uh i myself am based in aberdeen so i have worked with a lot of oil companies i'm very you know we are up here very much an oil economy and it is very difficult uh, it's one of those things where you really feel that a lot of these oil companies should be starting to move to renewables at the very least there is still a case for needing oil just now but that is because we don't have an alternative so what is an alternative and then and then they can move down interestingly in the news over the last uh, few weeks has been quite a lot of cases of fight back i guess towards the oil industry uh, shell have been given a set amount of time to reduce their carbon footprint yeah. and it's chevron i think we're made to take on two people with environmental backgrounds on the board yeah it, i mean it's been kind of a landmark couple of weeks for it hasn't it and i think it's a really interesting one because this is where you get into the discussion around individual action uh, i'm going to use the word versus systemic change but i'm going to come back to that because i think at the moment in the sustainability space, the two are kind of pitched against each other. And if you're on team systemic change, then it's almost as if you're against individual action and you're saying that it's pointless and it won't make any change. But actually individual action has got us to this point. It's created the wave of awareness and what is happening now. So with needing the behavior, needing kind of everything to change, basically, we need to create a new social norm and individual action is what's achieved that to this point and now we need the systemic change so I don't think it is an either or but the kind of press worthy headlines don't like that so we often get pitched against each other if we're on different sides of that argument I think it is a holistic thing but I think this is exactly where we need everything to change because the corporations in the way that they're currently set up are always going to be driven at the moment by their shareholder value so they're always going to be about creating bottom line profit So until they've got a triple bottom line of people, planet and profit embedded in their operations, they're not going to change. And if they are, it's going to be these kind of nods to sustainability or minute changes in the scale of things that that are greenwashing. Um, So I agree with you that actually we do need to tell the positive stories and we do need to put that out there. And if we don't do that, it does give them that excuse to not do anything. But actually what we need now is the legislation and the regulation to catch up and to regulate these industries, put the infrastructure in place. And obviously where we've got oil economies to create new jobs for the people that when we transition away from oil, we'd not left with a massive deficit and loads of social problems as a result of that. So there's kind of three pieces to this. There's the general public, which is us as individuals and consumers, but also as citizens. I don't think we think of ourselves as that because we're talked to so much as consumers that we don't really think of our power as citizens. Then you've got the corporations and we feel like our only power is to buy or not to buy and to boycott or not to boycott and it doesn't really make that much difference anyway you know that whole argument of oh well I'm one person what's it what difference is it going to make and then you've got the legislation which is where we can really affect change as citizens by pushing for that but we really need kind of governments and and regulators to catch up there as well and there's so much you can do that can be really impactful as well I get I get why people get tired with individual action and I've been there myself of thinking oh my gosh is this really making any difference and you still you know see mountains of waste or whatever but if you look at things like just moving your bank account to a more ethical bank account that isn't funding fossil fuel projects like that's a really impactful thing that you can do and even the kind of smaller actions I think if you do them and you talk about them and you know it's no longer the kind of hippie stereotypes of of eco living is it that they used to be it used to be kind of a weird fringe society thing to do but it is becoming that social norm now and I think if you can find the right way to talk about these positive solutions and spread those stories you know if you find a great ethical product or you find a great eco solution share that with other people because other people are looking for it it really does create that ripple effect and that's what's creating the new social norm that is going to lead to the legislation change it's just that that is the slowest piece Mm -hmm. of this giant moving machine i think all companies big companies as well are becoming more aware of it talking of banking hsbc this week have uh, announced they're going to divest themselves of all uh, yeah I think fossil fuels, although 
their timetable is I think it's 2031 so they're, they're not doing it quickly but it's it's still a step I guess in the right direction and that's what we need everyone to be taking at least one step that's it exactly Cool. Can you tell us a bit about the book? Yes. So I unfortunately can't tell you a title yet because it doesn't have one. (laughs) However, um, I'm on draft two at the moment. The deadline to submit that to my publishers is next week. So that's getting close, which is very exciting. Um, This is something that I've wanted to do for so long and it's amazing to have the opportunity to do it. I'm working with Icon Publishers. um, I'm very grateful that they have taken me into their roster of authors and given me all the support to write it. And it it is about that debate about individual action versus systemic change. And it's actually looking at all the things I've just mentioned there, you know, how do we become consumer activists and how do we become climate citizens and what can we do to really affect change? So I'm looking at greenwashing and how we are being manipulated into over-consuming, how we can consume less, but consume better. And then so that's kind of part one of the book is escaping that toxic consumption cycle, learning how to spot greenwashing, learning how to shop less and shop better. And then part two of the book is really looking at how we can create that systemic change, because I think when we start to talk about that and when we start to think about that, it can very quickly become very overwhelming, especially if you are feeling a bit disillusioned with politics at the moment, like many people are, or you're not particularly politically active. Um, you know, if you were raised in a family where it was rude to talk about politics at the dinner table, even though that's something that affects all of us, everything in our life is affected by politics. Um, You know, I think there's a lot. And like I said, our identity as consumers is much more prominent in society than our identity as citizens. So I think there's a lot kind of stacked against us in terms of engaging in that. And when we come into ethical and sustainable living, we come into it as consumers And it's about helping us shift that mindset, but also some really practical actions. So what I'm doing at the moment is kind of going back through the book and just really infusing it with loads of practical action that people can take. Because I really want it to be, I don't know about you guys, but when I read a book, I crack the spine, I turn the pages over. It's usually got a tea stain on it where I balance my mug on it because I've been reading and juggling things. I know to some people that is absolute (laughs) sacrilege and you do not do that to books but I really want it to be one of those books that people scribble in and turn the pages down and make loads of notes and then hand it on to people, you know, just a real kind of manual handbook for for how to do this stuff. So yeah, I'm hoping people are going to send me photos of my book, just like covered in spaghetti bolognese or whatever, because they've been reading it and couldn't put it down, but it'll be out in spring 2022. I think that's an amazing ethos to have um, for the book as well. I think that's just so great and such a nice concept of that book sharing and stuff as well. I think it will be really helpful. And I am seeing this as, like I said, a consumer who's felt a bit naive about these things. I can't think of anything better than getting that kind of insight and that kind of little opinions and suggestions of how we can take these steps to make ourselves more sustainable. I think it'll be great. Thank you. I hope so. And yeah, I think... I think that guilt as consumers, like when you start to realise how bad your consumption habits have been and possibly still are, like mine are still pretty bad in a lot of areas. There's so many areas I know I could be doing much, much better. And I think that guilt and that shame of that almost does get in our way. And again, is kind of designed that way by advertisers, by marketers, just social media and society in general. So I really want to get across that kind of almost that sense of why we're in that position and that permission to ourselves to forgive ourselves for that and be able to move forward and be imperfectly eco because I think we're you know if we keep striving for that kind of 100% then we will get there but it's going to be collectively it's not you know it shouldn't be a competition of who's more eco than each other it, it you know it should be why aren't the companies and the corporations and the governments more eco than we are. If you had to give advice to people who are looking at ethical marketing and looking to avoid greenwashing, I guess, or or even to just be more aware of it, have you got any advice? Yeah, uh, where <laughs> to start? <laughs> and I think that's the thing. I think it can be really overwhelming. And I think there's a real urge to do something sustainable and then insert yourself into that conversation straight away. And I think what's really important is if you want to move in that direction, 
to listen first. You need to listen, you need to learn, you need to get your own house in order in terms of your carbon footprint, your ethical practices, everything else. So when I work with clients, I usually advise them to start by looking at ethical marketing practices. So there's a really good um, movement called the Ethical Move who are looking into this um, and creating a pledge that businesses can take, which is around things like not using false urgency, not using false scarcity, not using charm pricing. A lot of the things that are designed to manipulate us and to trigger our fear-based response. So the first thing I advise them to do is strip out any fear-based marketing because that is what's promoting that overconsumption. And then to do the work in-house to look at how are they avoiding contributing to that overconsumption? So what do they need to change in their business model to become regenerative, to become circular, to reduce their carbon footprint, which obviously isn't going to happen overnight, but what is their roadmap and start putting actual dates, targets, evidence, figures to that, because that's the best way to avoid that vagueness and no proof of greenwashing. And then you don't have to be 100% perfect. Because like we said, that is the aspiration, but we're not there. Like we're not going to get there in the current system that we're in. So you don't have to be perfect to then insert yourself into that conversation and start promoting your good news stories. But you do have to be confident enough that your house is in order and that you've got that roadmap and um, to kind of avoid that greenwashing, to avoid talking about this too early. And I think people often it's not so much that they want to greenwash, it's that it happens accidentally or that they're just really scared to talk about the good things they are doing because they're worried they're going to get criticism, they're going to get asked the tough questions. So start with that, getting your house in order, get your data together, understand what your roadmap looks like so that you can answer those questions and then bring it into your marketing and bring that sustainability piece in. But I think that roadmap for some brands needs to be longer for often for the big brands because they do one thing and they're like hey we're sustainable look at us and that's where they're kind of cashing in and not doing the work and then for other brands they need to shorten that timeline because you know the small businesses that are sitting there genuinely you know climate change is keeping them up at night their eco anxiety is keeping them up at night they are not putting themselves into this conversation even though they're doing the work because they're scared of that backlash but actually they are the positive stories that we need and they are the positive kind of elements that solutions that we should be lifting up and saying look if the small businesses can do it the big businesses should be able to as well I mean I was kind of wanting to touch on that kind of like how can consumers make that distinguish between knowing when they're being marketed to it in this manipulative kind of manner and when can they know if it's legitimate is it just from doing your own research is that the only way we've got just now of being able to tell when companies are being honest with us and being truthful and especially when it is a bigger company that's maybe not just a small independent business how can we be sure that these companies are doing what they say they're doing is it just like what you've said looking for that evidence that they're producing and doing our own research on the subject this is such a hard question to answer because it's always the answer that nobody wants to hear because that research is so time consuming it's so difficult and also the idea of ethics and sustainability is still pretty subjective you know it might be more important to you that your produce for example is organic than that it's plastic free or you know fair trade bananas for example always a really good kind of case study for this you know the fair trade ones always come in plastic and the non-fair trade ones don't and you have to make that decision between your ethical values and your sustainable ones so I think we kind of as consumers the best starting point is to know what our values are and know which ones are the priority and kind of let that rage that you have to make that decision be the fire that, to push for the systemic change that's what I'm saying in my book you know and also the this idea that it is on us. We do have to do that research. Unfortunately, there are some credentials. So there are things like when B Corp, for example, which is started in America is becoming bigger over here. But that is a certification that does look across the whole supply chain. So a lot of um, different elements as from kind of living wage to safe factories to um, environmental pledges and things are audited so companies that have got that certification are actively working on this stuff um, and that you know there are some big brands that have got that so like Ben and Jerry's and people are kind of the well-known ones over here at the moment and um, that's something we can look for but then with small businesses there are 
you know, a lot of barriers to entry in terms of the time investment, the financial investment a lot of the time for these things. And there's just so many certifications to choose from. You know, there's Fair Trade, there's Leaping Bunny if you're cruelty free, there's B Corp. There's so many different things you could do that they don't have time to do all of them. So just because they haven't got it doesn't mean they're not doing it. Um, so that again makes it really confusing because you're looking for this stuff but then it's not always there but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not doing it so unfortunately at the moment it does rely on us to do our research to know which brands to buy from which is where I think community is really important and having these conversations sharing this information kind of the divide and conquer approach that you research that brand I'll research this one and we'll report back what we find but what I'm talking about in part two in my book about this kind of shift to systemic action is that actually sometimes it might be better to buy the unsustainable option because you are time poor but use the time that you would have spent researching that one brand that one product in lobbying at a bigger level for systemic change which might be you know if you've only got 20 minutes spare this week and you choose to either research the brand that you were going to buy whatever product from or writing to your MP if that is going to be the more impactful thing or finding a petition to sign and share and campaign for or you know signing an open letter or something like that you know there's there's lots of different campaigns and things or even you know when April comes around getting involved in fashion revolution and asking the brands who made my clothes and becoming part of that pressure group if you are really limited on time, then sometimes it is better to get involved in the bigger action and make the unsustainable purchase and do the inner work to let go of the green guilt that comes with that. I think that's such a nice way to put it because I think you're right. And that the green guilt that you feel when you do because people have little slip ups here and there and you can't always be um, sustainable all the time. And I think it's, it's very comforting to know that you can be trying as hard as you can and maybe there's still steps that you want to take as a consumer but you can you can get there and you can do it slowly which I think is it, it feels nice to know that <laughs> yeah definitely and I think again this comes back to the system like all the pressure at the moment is on us as consumers and we are the ones with the least resources we're the most time poor you know, we're not as cash rich as these big corporations. We don't have access to the whole global supply chain. There's a really good analogy, which isn't mine. It's um, from a journalist who wrote for The Guardian, but he talks about um, eggs. So you go into the supermarket. Interestingly, eggs are always at the back to make you walk through the whole store to make you buy more on your way. But that's a separate note. Uh, that's not part of his analogy. That's just my little how they're manipulating you. But when you get there, there will be a whole rack full of eggs and the ones that are free range and organic and good life for the hens will be there. And they'll be more expensive than the ones from caged hens that have had a horrible life, really badly produced. And some people will need to buy those eggs, even though they want to buy the higher shelf free range organic eggs. They've got no choice for whatever circumstances they're in. They have to buy the bad, in air quotes, eggs. But whichever one you choose the person and the people who own the supermarket still profit from both those eggs so instead of us shaming each other which again all this advertising and manipulation is designed to make us do and be like hey you're really bad for buying those eggs you should buy the the good eggs what we should be doing is saying to the supermarket why are you selling the bad eggs why are you allowed to to raise chickens in that way like that's the bit of the system that should be changing and it comes back to the whole fashion debate you know with with Primark and people shaming people for going and queuing outside Primark to buy fast fashion when it opened again after lockdown recently you know instead of shaming each other for our and the individual circumstances we're in and how much money you earn or don't earn and what your individual circumstances are we should be channeling that shame where it belongs which is the shareholders that are profiting from both options yeah. i'll put my soapbox away that's my little rant no, I, th I think that's a really good point one of the things i see a lot on social media is people attacking people for buying on amazon now i absolutely understand there are issues with Amazon. They're an, they're an interesting ideal of a company that when under pressure suddenly announced a $10 billion uh, environmental thing. Uh, yeah. Of that, what you will. But it was when they were under a lot of pressure with regards to employment practices, this suddenly appeared. I do still buy from Amazon, usually because it's a cheapest option for me and I don't always have the option to go elsewhere because of their buying power. 
some of the prices, not all of them, but some of them are definitely lower. And I feel it's really important we don't shame people for doing what they have to do in order to save a bit of money. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, time as well. It's, you know, it's money, it's time. It's everything, isn't it? Like you guys know, I've just had a baby. I bought loads of baby stuff on Amazon. I hated that I was doing it. I know all the issues with Amazon. Morally, it sits really badly with me. But I was overwhelmed. I didn't know where to start with. What do I need? What don't I need? What's good quality? What's not? Where do I find all this stuff? How do I find it at the best price? Everything else. And I think when something shifts in your life like that, you know, any circumstance shifts, and we've all been through that with lockdown, some people will have become much more sustainable, some people will have not so much, and then will shift back into old habits and things. But when you go through a shift like that, all sorts of stuff's happening in your brain that you know you're being directed to go to certain places and again they are a brand that has huge amounts of brand trust and everything else but there there is a twitter account that tweets every single day that jeff bezos chooses not to end world hunger because he has enough personal wealth to end world hunger uh so that's quite a depressing twitter account to follow (laughs) (laughs) if you want to like remind yourself how uh bad that system is but yeah I think I think it's really important that we don't shame I think it's really important that we have these conversations and that we talk about what's good about these platforms what's bad about them because there is some stuff that is good that we will want to take forward and there's a lot of stuff that's bad that we will want to ditch but actually our energy is much you know us sitting and arguing about whether we should shop on Amazon or not makes no difference in the grand scheme of things but actually that collective pressure on Amazon to change like you said as soon as they were under media scrutiny and there was a big backlash against their workers rights and everything else going on suddenly this initiative comes out of the woodwork whether or not that's you know fully embedded or not is a whole other debate but again it's a step in the right direction and it shows what happens when that social pressure is applied but that social pressure isn't applied when we're infighting with each other and that's really what this whole system is relying on so that's what we need to break up with stop arguing with each other about what eggs you're buying and where you're buying them from and turn your attention to the people that are running the show yeah absolutely and I think that um kind of moving on from what you've touched on with coronavirus it's obviously such a a massive thing that's really hard to not bring up now but speaking about the pandemic what impact do you think that that has had on greenwashing and the way that consumers are being manipulated in this way but also just ethical marketing as a whole how do you think this world event has impacted that? Yeah, again, this could be a whole separate episode, couldn't it? There's a really good um, podcast episode. I will just give it a shout out and I'll share the links with you guys. But um, Business of Fashion did a really good episode on um, kind of what the pandemic has done to our spending habits. Uh, So what I'm going to quote is completely from that. I have to give full credit to that. But it just blew my mind when I was listening to it. And again, it was about that survival instinct. So it was a concept called mortality salience. I always say it wrong, but it's basically the awareness of our own death. And when a big event happens where we become aware of our own mortality, it completely shifts consumer behavior and not for the better. So there's like a big rise in gambling, in alcohol consumption, luxury goods, you know, all all the things are really bad for the planet and it explains why you had the roaring 20s off of the back of the last pandemic and why we could be going into that again but obviously the issue with that is that we are in two crises at the same time we're in a health crisis which is becoming an economic crisis in terms of the pandemic so they're going to encourage us to go out and consume and to spend because that is the solution to economic crises and that's what happened after the, the war and things but with this crises we've also got the climate crisis so if we do that we're going to be in big trouble so it's really interesting because I think you've got a real split I think a lot of people have had a lot of time on their hands and have used that to make the sustainable changes or to explore the sustainable issues that they have wanted to look at because of this raise in awareness over the recent years but haven't ever had the time But I think you've also got a lot of people that have been much more time poor, you know, with homeschooling, with caring, with being frontline workers, whatever. So I've had to rely on convenience, which, again, may have made them have that realisation that the system needs to change. I think it will be really interesting what happens. I think our general consumer behaviour will probably go back to where it was pre-pandemic in terms of not being very sustainable and might even get worse because of this effect of you know the psychology of this mass you know is a trauma this trauma that we've been through 
because of the way that we're wired and the way that advertising works, we might go back into those old habits 10 times worse. But I think what we will do is go back into those habits with that rational brain awareness that we are being manipulated, that the system does need to change and that there are huge inequalities because that's what we've seen. Like that's kind of a running theme throughout the whole pandemic is these huge inequalities across the board and the issue of the climate crisis and things not moving fast enough. So I think there will be a real battle for consumers between their rational brain that wants change and their primitive brain that wants to spend money. That will always win if it's being spoken to because that's how we work. But at the times when it's not being spoken to, I do think there will be the desire to push back. And I think this is why it's absolutely the right time to start campaigns and to start mobilizing communities towards that collective systemic action because there will be a big desire for it. But I think a lot of people won't know where to channel that. So we need to provide the spaces for them to channel that into. And then I think that's where all of this awareness that's been building over the last few years can suddenly actually come to something really big, hopefully. What do you think will be the next big change in ethical marketing and or ethics in general, I guess? Oh, that's an interesting one. There's a few things, I think. But I, the more I think about it, I actually think that sustainability is becoming the buzzword that we're going to kind of kick off next because it has been watered down. And I think what we need to move towards is regenerative and circular economy. And I think what is happening is that big corporations are using net zero and carbon offsetting as their way of meeting the targets that they need to meet, um, but without making the changes in the supply chain. You know, they're offsetting at the end, but they're not reducing first. I don't think there's general public awareness yet of what net zero and carbon offsetting means. And I think when that becomes kind of public level awareness, you know, when that hits the mainstream media that actually these companies are greenwashing again, that's going to be the big backlash. And I think sustainability for the ones that truly are sustainable, we will stop using sustainability and sustainable as the keywords, if you like, put it in kind of SEO marketing terms, but you know, the buzzwords that the language that we use, we will move on to regenerative and circular. We'll start talking more about, you know, donut economics and that kind of model by Kate Rayworth and those kind of things, because that's about the reduction first. That's about living within our means, not just offsetting at the end. And I think that for me, that's the one that I'm watching with interest because I think that's where the next kind of, scandals might come I don't know big campaigns at least um and definitely big surge in awareness I'm not quite sure where it will come from yet um I think what's happened with the fossil fuel companies in the last couple of weeks is an interesting one to watch because obviously that's garnered a lot of media attention going more mainstream maybe starting to get people to ask those questions so yeah watch this space I think you're right. I mean, net zero is definitely one of those kind of buzzwords at the moment. I have a collection of about 25 articles that I have in my uh, drafts folder to go up on that if I run short of articles, they're about X next company's newest has uh, decision to go net zero. And just my yeah. spare articles, if I find that I'm two articles short, I'll stick up a couple of net zero articles because there are so many of them. Yeah, and I'd imagine you're on a lot of the press distribution lists that I'm on, and it's like endless. You get about five, six a day come in of so-and-so is going net zero by 2050, and you're just like, no, 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 no. But how good is that, though, in a way? Like, obviously, it is frustrating when you look through the greenwashing lens and stuff, but how good is that that we are getting that volume of environmental stories now? It shows that that awareness and that care is there. We're maybe not channeling it in the right way yet, but the fact that we are getting so many press releases and stories come through on a daily basis when, you know, a few years ago, when I started, it was kind of scratching around for where do you get this news and what's going on and who's doing what. And you just, and now I can't keep up with it. And I'm sure you're the same. Brilliant. Have you uh, got a favourite ethical marketing campaign? Oh, this is a good one. I have thought about this and I've talked about one in the book, which is kind of, the biggest cliche one in the industry you're gonna know what it is uh, but I really think Patagonia's don't buy this jacket campaign which I'm sure is like the most cliche answer to that question I could possibly give but 
for me, that just embodies where we should be going. And I think that, you know, releasing it around Black Friday, I mean, we do a, we do a Black Friday campaign called Shop Ethical Instead every year, which is all about raising up the small businesses and things. And I think it's just as a big brand, and obviously the kind of leverage that Patagonia have got to put that campaign out there with an anti-consumerism message. I know there is that level of manipulation that they're kind of the reverse psychology of it, but I do think that is just such a powerful statement to make at that particular time as well. The fact that it was Black Friday and, you know, really kind of honing in on their ethos of if you are going to buy new, buy high quality, buy something that lasts, buy something that's ethically made and can be repaired. Um, but ultimately the first step we should be making in that decision is not to buy. And so I think that in terms of messaging at the time was very radically different to what else is going on. And now it's a bit of a cliche. <laughs> Patagonia, I think, though, do have a really great ethos with to yeah. how they especially how they run their marketing and their view of the outdoors they yeah. have they have an identity that they believe mm-hmm. in yeah definitely and i think um it's naomi klein who obviously has written a lot about fashion the fashion industry but also about corporations and you know corporate giants and uh, has done some really interesting work in that space and she wrote about patagonia i think it was in the founder's book um in the forward she actually wrote you know i, I hesitate to put any brand on a pedestal because brands need to they all need to be changing their ways, but they are kind of a model for where we should be going. And I think that she's right about that. And I also think that we almost don't really know where we should be going. We know what we've got wrong now. We can look at it and be like, okay, that's that's where we messed up. That's all the stuff we need to fix, but it's very messy and there's a lot in there. So how do we do it? And I, for me, Patagonia are a step along the way and they are really committed to that journey of we know we could be doing better as well and that is what we're doing you know they've they've done that every step of the way and I think you really see that in the fact that the founder is also the founder of one percent for the planet and initiatives like that you know it's really baked in and embedded and for me that's what I look for from a brand to know that they're not greenwashing is how much have they baked that into to the way that they operate the way that the founders live the you know staff live um, and what brand what brand identity are they creating and I, yeah I think Patagonia do embody that okay so I thought we'd just end with something a little bit lighter and you could tell us what have you been enjoying out with kind of just the ethical things films tv books any recommendations <laughs> good question most of the stuff I've been consuming is very baby related <laughs> <laughs> how to get them to sleep <laughs> there's no secret for that um, but I, one that I always shout out on uh, these types of questions is a really good podcast called Pivot, which is American. It's by um, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, who are a tech journalist and a professor in branding, respectively. And they have really, really good conversations about tech, big business, um, you know, all the things that are going on in that world, which have so many links to the ethical side. So it's still kind of linked to the ethical side, but it is also a really good kind of step out of your echo chamber and think like a shareholder. So it's a little bit go to the dark side and find out how their brains work. Um, That's probably the only thing that I've kept up with really like regularly listening to they come out with a weekly show and really regularly obviously through this time of very little sleep juggling a baby writing a book all the rest of it uh all of my tv consumption is like winnie the pooh and things like that now that the baby loves all of my books are like how to get them to sleep how to deal with teething things like that so you don't want those recommendations so i'll leave you with pivot Uh, which is a really good weekly podcast that is very interesting for getting out of your echo chamber and thinking about what's going on in big business. Um, Oh, I will give a little plug to our new platform. So we have recently, uh, for a combination of reasons, including ethical reasons, moved away from Facebook. We used to have a Facebook group for our members. Um, It was for our paid members only, but we have now moved to a platform called Mighty Networks, which is Again, we're going with the it's better than approach. It's better than Facebook for a multitude of reasons. It's more focused. Uh, It's got slightly better ethical credentials around how they handle data and things like that. 
Um, and the move over has meant that we can open up a free space as well. So if you are interested in all of the stuff that we've talked about um, and you want to connect with small businesses that are doing things in ethical and sustainable ways or you're running one yourself, please come to community.ethicalhour.com and sign up and come join us and be part of that discussion. Hannah, have you got any recommendations for this month? Um, I feel like I've said this so many times, favourite podcast. Um, you're wrong about another American podcast by journalists Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall where they look at a lot of the things going on in the world like current events past events and get you to think about things in a bit more of an open-minded way whether it's um looking at true crime things and how to you don't always have to characterize people into whether they're good or bad and looking at the human nature that occurs within things and I think that it's always really important to have compassion and empathy for people's situations that you might not always think about um so yeah that's what i would recommend <laughs> always my favorite one <laughs> that sounds really good it's, i'm gonna add that genuinely to i listen to it every single day it's very very good i'm gonna go a bit more um ridiculous uh, a friend of mine a guy called kev sutherland who uh, is a comedian and artist has just started up a new podcast called uh, comic cuts and it gets various guests and they take one panel of a comic or a graphic novel and they just talk about why they like it and it's quite funny and it's quite interesting uh and kev is a very interesting guy he runs a a kind of comedy set of characters called the scottish falsetto sock puppet theater and if you haven't seen them they are brilliant they are just ridiculous but very very funny um and so i'm going to give a little bit of a shout out to that Amazing. I love the creativity that is available to us now with things like podcasts and stuff. It's just, there's a podcast literally. on literally everything. <laughs> it's so good. You can learn so much. I love it. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, thank you so much, Shan. It's been amazing. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been so nice to chat to you both. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast.